Okay, welcome everybody to this evening's public event um, at the LSC, which is on Has Fair Trade Asked for Enough? It's jointly organised by the Department for International Development and Trading Visions. Um, Trading Visions is an educational and campaigning charity that focuses on fair trade, small producers and the small scale producers uh, and the chocolate industry. Um, now Trading Visions would like to keep in touch with you all. Some of you may have seen the table outside. Um, if you would like to um, keep in touch with Trading Visions, um, please sign up to their um, newsletter at the table just outside and they've got some free pieces of fair trade chocolate there as well, just as a little bonus. And I'm told also there's a divine chocolate hamper prize for one lucky person who signs up. Um, perhaps I should also point you to Tom Allen, who's the Front Trading Visions and has been behind all the organisation of the event here this evening. Is Tom in the audience? Yeah. Yeah, yeah do you want to? So, um, Tom is a person to contact if you want to know more about Trading Visions. Yeah. Well, okay, this evening's event is about has fair trade asked for enough? And I think it's, it's quite interesting perspective because a colleague of mine uh, passed me an article this morning uh, from The Telegraph, the headline of which was, Fair trade is neither fair nor good for trade. And our panel is asking actually a rather different question, is fair trade not ambitious enough? Is it not doing enough? Could it be doing a lot more? Should it be working with corporates? And is it time actually to make the rules of fair trade much more tough? And we have a very experienced uh, set of speakers here who work in different ways on fair trade issues. Um, we have um, Deborah Duan, who's director of the World Development Movement. Um, which campaigns for justice and equality for the world's poor. Deborah was a founder and trustee of Anti-Apathy and is, has recently joined the board of Fair Trade Foundation. Um, to the left of Deborah is Julia Clark, um, head of marketing at Tate and Lyle. Um, she led the switch of the company's entire retail sugar uh, range to fair trade in 2008. Um, at, the, at the time, this was the largest ever commitment to fair trade by any major UK food or drink band, brand. And I can say thank you to her because this year my marmalade was not only organic but made with fair trade sugar. Um, to the far left is Robin Murray, who's an industrial economist and a co-founder and board member of Twin Trading. Twin has established a number of pioneering producer-owned fair trade companies, notably Café Direct, um, Divine Chocolate, AgroFair UK, and Liberation Nuts. And uh, to, near to me is um, Adam Brett. He co-founded the Tropical Whole Foods Company. He's a director of Fullwell Mill and the out-of-this-world UK health food retailing chain. He's been a self-employed entrepreneur since 1990, working on fair trade food businesses in Uganda, Afghanistan, Burkina Faso, Pakistan, and Zambia and Zanzibar. And he was telling me recent, just now about importing fair trade raisins and also uh, from Afghanistan, pomegranates. So look out for those pomegranates and those fair trade raisins when you go shopping next and I'm sure he'll, he can tell you where, where you can get them from. So this stellar um, 
panel of speakers is going to look critically at what fair trade has been doing in the last uh, 15, 20 years and ask the question, well, is it time now to move on and do more? And if so, what should fair trade be doing now? Um, the speakers will speak for about 10 minutes each and then we'll open it up um, for questions. And we'll finish about 10 to 8. And if anyone would like to join or meet, talk with the speakers afterwards, there'll be a small reception in the atrium, which is in the main building opposite in the student services area on the ground floor. Um, I should let you know that this event will be recorded and there may be a podcast. Um, and could I finally ask you all to uh, switch off your mobile phones if you've got them on? Thank you very much. So I would like to start off uh, by asking Deborah Doan to speak on this topic of is fair trade, um, has fair trade done enough? Thank you. Good evening. I hope everyone's got their fair trade products with them today. I'd, I'd like to point out the fact that I'm wearing my a fair trade dress and I'm quite proud of that. Um, I didn't realize I was speaking first, so hopefully I'll have the issues uh, covered that you're looking forward to hearing. Um, as I've recently joined the board of the Fair Trade Foundation, I think um, I'm very much a supporter of fair trade and I believe in fair trade, but I also want to challenge it to do more. Last year, Nestle finally kind of put its demons aside, I think, and, and agreed to put the fair trademark on its four-finger Kit Kat um, for sales here in the UK. Um, a lot of people applauded that, and they said, fair trade's now mainstream, and indeed it is mainstream. 74% um, of the public know uh, about the fair trade label. In certain commodities, fair trade represents 50% of their markets. Um, in Nestle's case, the actual premium represents about 1% of Nestle's sales. Um, part of their announcement, they pledged to spend £65 million in the next 10 years to deal with uh, social and environmental issues facing cocoa farming communities. On closer scrutiny, that includes um, teaching them things about tree pruning and drying beans. Um, I think it's hardly a revolution in how Nestle does business, and I'm going to talk a bit about this as I go on. Years ago, I actually campaigned for Nestle to move to fair trade. Around um, in the early 2000s, they put out. If you went to, I remember going to a Labour Party conference in Blackpool, and there were these these um, brochures all over, kind of. And I've not been able to get an electronic copy of this, and I seem to have lost my version. So you have to trust me on this hearsay. But there was a big brochure about why their trade was more fair than fair trade, and this is certainly, you know, a long way from there. We said you should go fair trade. But actually, as a campaigner, I've always thought once the mainstream gets on board, we now need to go to the next stage and think about how we can push things further. So let's put the successes of fair trade in, in a bit of context. Um, you may have heard the news, for those of you who read the, the papers in the last couple of days, fair trade sales have topped the billion pound mark, one point I get 1.17 billion pounds in fair trade sales, which is extraordinary um, in the last year. It's built this amazing grassroots movement. Um, WDM was one of the founders of the fair trade movement. We're a founder member of it. We now have 500 fair trade towns, universities, churches, um, grassroots people all over the country who are really supporting and behind the idea of trade justice and fair trade. 
Um, the movement was really concerned about unjust trade, and fair trade was, an, was a response to that. It was a market-based response to bypass some of the systems of unjust trade. Um, the original vision was of companies doing business differently and of achieving better equity and balance in markets. And some of the early innovators of fair trade, like Divine, like Cafe Direct, these 100% companies where the producers actually own shares in the business, um, really led the way and they pioneered, pioneered the way for the big guys to get on board. And some would argue, actually, that once the mainstream players have got on board, they were free riding off the good work of some of the 100% fair traders, and we can debate that point. Um, in theory, it sounds like a very good thing that companies like Nestle have adopted fair trade. But I think in practice, there's some fractures that are beginning to show. And, and if some of these fractures aren't dealt with, there is a potential that we can sideline some of the more fundamental issues that need to be dealt with in unjust trade, from trading rules to power relationships in commodity markets. Fair trade was, one could argue, a bit of a sticking plaster, as I said, for unregulated commodity markets. Over a 30-year period, we saw prices driven down by 30 to 60% in commodity markets. And the big players, the dominant players, were in part responsible for that. Um, the structural issues, in spite of the popularity of fair trade, still remain the same. Fair trade makes up a fraction of trade overall, and it's, it's really a drop in the bucket when you look at the wider trading system, where poor countries have been forced to liberalize their markets, often too rapidly, and often at the expense of the poorest producers. Poor farmers in, in developing countries have found themselves unable to compete. Local subsidies were cut. Um, they found themselves where trade was dumped on them. So, so what options have they had to fight back? They've had limited access to land and capital. Um, the conditions have always and will continue to favor the larger traders, uh, companies like Unilever, over smallholder producers. And I know Robin's going to talk a bit more about smallholder production. Smallholders, which fair trade was about addressing the, the plight of, of smallholder producers, um, have little, if any, influence over domestic or international food policy. They are completely marginalized in the system. And if you couple this marginalization with an over-reliance on development, which over the last several years, of, uh, decades in fact, has, has favored agricultural-based trade, um, export-led trade for the poorest countries pushed by the multilaterals, you have, you have potentially disastrous situations. A number of organizations, some people say the answer to that is a better trade justice, which is what we would want to see. But trade justice isn't trade justice as the WTO might see it, free trade. The Doha development round, um, which was rejected by grassroots movements, including ourselves, fair trade, and so on, um, and, and the wider part of the fair trade movement, projected that two-thirds of any gains in the Doha development round, which was meant to address poor developing country producers, amongst others, would actually go to richer ones and not poorer ones. Um, what we're seeing now is a lot of the situations in commodity markets um, are, are the same as they were 15 years ago when fair trade was founded, if not more so in many cases. Um, one of the issues we campaign on is uh, volatility in commodity markets. 
we've seen prices go up, prices go down. Now, fair trade came around when prices were at an all-time low, um, driven down over many, many years. Those prices are now going up, but they can fall just as quickly. And that's, in fact, what happened. There was food price spikes in 2007, 2008. Prices went up. They shot down very rapidly because of the manipulation, we believe, of markets by global commodity traders. Um, when the prices go up, you think this is good for producers, but actually the developing country producers in, in fair trade don't see very much of the benefit of those price rises that you're seeing. It's basically the trading sector that creams off the top. So the, the question for today is, has fair trade asked enough? Um, and I'm going to speak specifically about um, the larger companies in particular. So having met the standards, companies like Nestle, the question is, should we applaud? Should we be worried? Or should we just ask for more? And I, I suggest it's probably a combination of all three. By attracting the mainstream players, fair trade has lifted the bar and demonstrated how smallholders and cooperative-based production can be integrated into global supply chains. And I think that's really quite a, an interesting and measurable step in the right direction. The question is, is it a bit of a catch-22 with the big, the big players on board? Are they now at the behest um, is fair trade now working at the behest of the big players? And I'll, I'll give a few examples. So for the most part, bigger companies often feign that they're benign. They'll just say, well, we can only do what the markets allow. I hear this very often by big companies. If the market will pay, we'll do it. Um, I don't buy that. In, in many situations, big companies are either, and, and most of these, many of these are global monopolies, are manipulating the market to their advantage through buying power, through driving down prices, through lobbying power on policy. In the case of fair trade specifically, you know, when the volumes grow, the amount they pay actually goes down because they want an economy of scale price. Is this the right thing? Is this right for fair trade producers? Fair trade producers have complained that the premium itself is inadequate and doesn't really cover the true costs of same sustainable production. But mainstream players will argue that the licensing fee is too high, so they threaten to move to less expensive and some might argue less ethical labeling schemes. Um, the problem is that consumers don't know the difference. So you feel like you're actually working at the behest of these players and they're now holding you over a barrel. Um, while Nestle, as I said, adopts the label, it's only a small portion of their sales. And meanwhile many, of their other, meanwhile, many of their other practices don't necessarily stand up to scrutiny. I would be very concerned about how they've ensured trading rules work in their favor rather than in the favor of smaller producers. Many of Nestle's board have been highly influential in voices within the WTO or positions within the International Chambers of Commerce who lobby for free and open trade that does not favor smallholder producers and poorer countries. Supermarkets. Supermarkets are now dominant players in both stocking products and in being licensees. And in doing so, what we've seen is that they squeezed out some of the smaller 100% fair trade um, companies. You can also see, quite worryingly, what one might suggest is supermarkets profiteering off of the fair trade brand. They discount their fair trade products to get higher volumes of sales. And what this actually does do is devalue the fair trade label itself. So smaller companies, all of the fair trade products, have to lower their prices in, over, in, a, in order to be able to compete with the supermarket-owned brands. 
And in, in the end, that drives down prices and means less money to producers rather than more. So now that fair trade is bigger and more confident, I think it needs to be a lot more explicit about the terms of trade all the way up the value change. Mainstreaming has not tackled the unequal relationship between northern and southern actors, a mainstreaming of fair trade. Because it's not policy-based, some have argued that it effectively reinforces a neoliberal system that works against uh, smaller producers. The reality is that social and economic justice is very difficult. Where you know many of us are working in this space, it's not very easy to achieve. We have powerful players. And fair trade um, has not necessarily been able to tackle that, and for a whole host of reasons. It has achieved an incredible amount in a relatively short space of time, but I think it needs to leverage that into more fundamental change. And it's always been a trendsetter, not something that bowed to the lowest common denominator, and we're at risk of it moving in that direction. With the public behind it, it has an opportunity to set the highest objectives and bring others up with it. And the heart of this is really tackling global inequality. So what can fair trade do moving forward? There are, I think you have to separate out what it can do from a policy perspective and from building what the movement itself can do to what can be done within a market-based system. For the mainstream players, I think fair trade can demand more without losing them, partially because of that, that incredible power of the movement that goes behind it. I think they can, able, they can enable producers to do more of the processing. That's one of the key problems is producers can't even process themselves. They can demand an end to discounting or at least pass on the differential to values lost to producers. They can ensure that producers don't bear the cost of certification. This is another issue. The costs of fair trade certification are often borne by, by the producers. One would argue, is that fair? One could argue that. They can ensure that lobbying activities on policy by the big companies don't undermine their fair trade ambitions. And quite often we see this case. It's like giving with one hand and taking with the other. Of the fair trade movement itself, and this includes founder members like ourselves, the fair trade towns, the churches, everyone here in this audience, I think fair trade has to be more open about supporting policy reform. It's very honest. It's behind the trade justice movement, but it can do a lot more campaigning and advocacy on it to bring about far more just trading systems. It can support initiatives that strengthen the power of producers in the supply chain, which it's starting to do, but needs to do more of. Um, it should certainly tackle and get on board with the issue of supermarket power. If supermarket power is undermining some of the fair trade um, offerings, then we need to tackle that. It's absolutely important. Um, it, can highlight those business models that are more fair. And some people have talked about having a fair trade gold standard for those companies that really are 100% fair trade. And lastly, I think it has to have ongoing assurances and alliances with the wider social justice movements that are campaigning on a whole host of issues which impacts on fair trade. That's financial market reform. I mentioned the commodity speculation. Tax justice. I mean, a lot of the companies that are happy to give a little bit through the fair trade label are also evading their taxes in developing countries. I think there's a role to be played there. Fair trade has an incredible moral authority and I think a great opportunity to take us forward for the next 15 years and actually achieve stronger social justice.
Um, our second speaker is Adam Brett of T Tropical Whole Foods. Good evening, everybody. Lovely to meet you all. Good to see a great uh, audience here today. Um, I thought I'd ask, start with a couple of questions. How many people here are currently at the LSE? Students? That probably a good, good amount less than half. And how many of you are sort of, let's say, committed to fair trade, proper, deep dyed in the wool fair traders? Okay, good. Not much more than half either. That's really interesting. I wonder who I've missed out <laughs> on that question. Who, ha who hasn't put their hands up? <laughs> okay. Um, right. I've, I've been introduced, um, and um, I'm not sure how many of you probably actually know or recognize the Tropical Whole Foods brand. We're a small uh, brand of health food products. We sell uh, organic and fair trade dried mangoes, apricots, um, walnuts, almonds, those kinds of products uh, in health food shops up and down the country. We have a fairly small turnover in that sector. But um, as Fullwell Mill, uh, we are a business that actually brings fair trade raw materials from all over the world and brings them into a number of different supply chains. So, for example, we sell um, a range of the nut products that go into the Ben & Jerry's ice, fair trade ice creams. So that means as a, um, as a business person, I touch quite a lot of businesses and I travel between uh, raw material source uh, countries uh, all over the world and uh, uh, purchasing markets all over the world as well. So I have a relatively broad experience. To give a little example, as Fullwell Mill, we consult into uh, one of the big um, Ghanaian chocolate companies, Quapa Coco, and we've actually helped them with the development of, qu of quality systems that they use in their supply chain. So although uh, our public face is quite small, I like to think that we're quite a useful bit of glue in sticking a lot of different things together uh, in, in the fair trade food supply chain space. Now, we're in a really interesting position as a company at present because we're being approached by such a lot of businesses that are interested in the concept of fair trade and of taking it forwards. And I've sort of specifically tried to bring a lot of what has come through to me in that process into what I'm going to try and say tonight because I think that it's absolutely apposite to this question where you've got big players, uh, the likes of, of uh, Unilever, who own Ben & Jerry, uh, own the Ben & Jerry brand, looking very long and hard at uh, fair trade labelling and trying to decide how they're going to do it and whether it can work for them or not. Um, those are very long processes that they go through. They're extraordinarily cautious businesses. They don't want to tie themselves to a standard that's going to cause them problems. They want to they want to um, tie themselves to standards that they're going to be able to use and that their customers are going to be interested in and that are going to help to grow their brands. So it's a very, very interesting and curious space to be in because we're, we're having a lot of dialogues with bigger players um, and seeing a lot of the reality of what they're bringing or trying to bring to fair trade. And something that has really struck home to me in that process is how extraordinarily diverse different commodity supply chains are and how there almost has to be a different form of norm in fair trade for every single one of those chains. And on top of that, 
that norm is not going to be static. We're going to see a situation where what was considered good fair trade in cocoa in 1995 is probably going to be dramatically different from what we would consider to be good fair trade in cocoa in 2015 or whatever. So I absolutely believe that this, we're being asked an interesting question tonight, but it's slightly misplaced in the sense that I think that fair trade is a moving target in many dimensions. It's, moving, it's a moving target in terms of having differences between supply chains and then having differences over time in each supply chain where it exists. So to sort of help illustrate that point, I was going to touch on a couple of simple practical examples and make a few points which I hope are slightly more overriding. So um, we've had some dialogue into um, Sainsbury's decision to go fair trade on the cotton that's in their T-shirts. Okay? So that has been a, 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 an absolutely massive decision for them, a hundred million pound decision, so something that you don't take lightly. Um, and what's interesting is that the research into that process revealed an almost impossibly dysfunctional business environment. When you actually looked at the way cotton was traded and managed right the way through the supply chain, this was something which, if you like, has kind of rolled up like a ball gathering moss and dust and dirt and it's got bigger and bigger and bigger as technical complexity has got added to it. So there are different businesses at the level of seed, lint, thread, cloth and garment in cotton. And that's, quite, that's a relatively simplified model. You, obviously you've got the farmer first of all growing the damn stuff, but then you've got people managing the, the, the seed, which is what comes off the plant, converting the seed into lint and so on. Separate businesses at each step. Now extraordinarily there's, there are very high levels of price volatility at each step as well. So somebody operating a thread-making factory, a, a, a weaving business, can be in a situation where they're buying lint at a price which is higher than the price that they're going to be able to sell their thread for. Okay? And then a matter of weeks or months later, that situation kind of reversed, and they'll be back in a situation where the thread is significantly more expensive and they can make money again. Now, I found this absolutely fascinating when I looked at it. I just thought, how on earth can this have arisen? And um, I dug in, and I ended up reading um, a woman called Eleanor Ostrom. Mm. I actually had a, had a, uh, a PowerPoint projection, and the, one of the slides was just going to be her picture, and I was going to see if anybody could identify <laughs> her. Uh, I hoped you all would be able to, as loyal economists. She was the winner of the 2009 um, Nobel Prize for Economics. Now, her work is in the area of, what's it technically called? Public resource management. Okay, or is that? Common property management. So, the classic example is a fishery. You've got a bunch of fish in the ocean, you've got a bunch of people who want to get the fish out. If we allow that to just run free, people will grab as much fish as they can. There won't be any fish left. We get an unsustainable um, situation. Now, I don't know how far the area of supply chain trade has really been analysed using the methodologies 
that Ostrom has built up. I'm not enough of an economist, and I would be really curious to have some dialogue on this with members of the audience, either directly after in the questions or at 10 to 8 downstairs. Because I'm fascinated by the fact that supply chains are, in a sense, an order of magnitude more complex um, a, a version of the classic um, prisoner's dilemma around exchange. At every single step, there are, there are absences of information or presences of information, presences of power, absences of power. We can have temporal issues where a farmer has to invest in a crop for five or ten years before they start to be able to harvest it. We can have speculation. We can have price volatility. We can have exploitation. We can have situations where market information is very limited. Only particular people know about uh, or have access to a particular point of sale or a particular point of purchase. We can have highly diversified raw materials in the supply chain. So let's take an example of vanilla, which might end up going into your run-of-the-mill vanilla ice cream as a lowest, lowest common denominator ingredient or might be on sale at five pounds per pod in a delicatessen in, um, in the middle of a, of a city. Okay? So now all these issues of, uh, of informational inadequacy along these very long supply chains which often have six, eight, ten different intermediaries, I think those are absolutely destined to be inefficient in an extraordinary way. And the conventional economics of, oh, yes, everything's going to work out, we're going to end up in a nice optimal situation where um, we're going to live in the best of all possible worlds, is completely childish. Okay? We actually have to grab our supply chains by the proverbial soft parts and squeeze okay, to make sure that they work as well as we can possibly make them work. And if we don't do that, if we don't have reasonable forms of regulation, market making, policing, etc., we end up with the terrible chaos that actually tends to reign in the world that we see around us. I'm not saying that things don't work. Plenty of things do work. But what I am saying is that across the world we can see all sorts of problems around um, unsustainable extraction of resources, around exploitation of uh, people in particular supply chains, around situations where some players have monopolistic powers while others have none, um, where many are forced into uh, very unfair trading relationships, etc., etc., etc. And I think it's actually time to grow that up into a proper grounded economic theory that says inefficiency is the rule. We shouldn't lay... Uh, uh, live under this kind of liberal assumption that markets are going to work a priori. Because we've got these extraordinarily complex multi-stepped supply chains, we basically have a game theory stroke prisoner's dilemma, whatever term you want to use for it, situation where we're automatically going to get dysfunction unless we step in and try and work around that. Okay? Now, fair trade is only one aspect of the process of stepping into a supply chain and trying to make it work better. But I believe that the fundamental principles that are in fair trade around trade justice, ethical action, fairness for the different portions of the supply chain and um, a sustainable approach that's not going to exploit resources over the long term is actually a very good bedrock starting point for any 
um, trade process. And uh, I actually think that's kind of the, uh, my, conclude, that's my, my concluding point. Let me quickly glance down and see if I've left anything out. I don't think I have. I'll stop there. Thank you. Very good. Thank you very much, Adam. And our next speaker is Julia Clark, um, formerly of Tate and Lyle and now a consultant. Thank you. Well, really, I should have read the small print and realised that I was up against a bunch of intellectual campaigning giants. Um, um, now, my, my, I do still work for Tate and Lyle, and, um, although not as an employee, as a consultant, and my perspective on fair trade is through the prism of Tate and Lyle and through the prism of sugar. Um, I think there have been some very interesting points made, actually very valid points made by the previous two speakers about how hard this stuff is and how chaotic it is. Um, coming, I will talk about one commodity only, um, no generalizations, and um, talk about some of the issues that we face in our journey into, Tatum, into fair trade. Should, Tate and Lyle is a company that is entirely dependent on sugar. There is no, not much complexity to our supply chain in terms of different, different inputs. It's the same input, but a million times over. The refinery in East London refines over a million tons of sugar a year. Um, and that means that when we go into, when my colleagues go into a country to buy the sugar, then they're met by fairly senior members of government, extremely senior members of, of the industry, because the scale that it works at um, creates an enormous impact in that country. But sugar's uh, an interesting commodity, and I think it's not unique in that there's a huge level of interdependency within the supply chain. A cane farmer, well, Tate and Lyle, is nothing without raw sugar to refine and package and sell. The people we buy from, the mill, are nothing without the cane farmers to deliver the cane for them to process. And the cane farmers are nothing without the mill to buy their sugar from them and process it. That doesn't mean we have to like each other. In fact, it, in all, it inevitably guarantees that we won't get on because there are those points in that relationship where you're negotiating with each other, where you're arguing with each other, when you haven't delivered what you said you'd deliver, um, when you said you'd deliver it. But it's a supply chain that is totally interdependent. And sugar is actually interesting because it's in so many different products in terms of the way we live and the way we eat that actually the, that dependency creeps outwards into so many other parts of, of our lives. Um, whether it be homemade marmalade or whether it be a snack that you grab on the way to the station, um, it's in everything um, and, and it has a, has a broad reach. Our journey to fair trade started with um, the idea that Tate and Lyle is a responsible company, believes itself to be a responsible company, believes itself to have responsible relationships with its suppliers and wanted to find a way to talk to consumers about that because it was something that consumers were interested in. Um, that was my contribution to the debate. Um, when, I mentioned, when I brought this to, to the chief executive, he added another element, which was that we were looking for ways to add value into the supply chain for our suppliers. Um, it may be that um, people look, look cynically at the idea that you can't buck the market, but it is very hard to buck the market. And if you're going to put the price up to your suppliers, it's not very easy to recover that from your customers, um, especially not in a market like sugar, which is pretty much you know, a commodity, pretty homogenous. 
And when we started to talk about fair trade, my boss realised that this was a way that we could give some value back to the, to the, to, to the farmers and realise that from the marketplace. And that's the genius of fair trade, that it starts to connect all of those people back through the whole supply chain. Um, and the reason we specifically needed to do that at that point is because the European regime that had managed the price of sugar um, for 30, 40 years was being dismantled and the farmers were going to face where well, we were all, everybody in the industry was facing a 36% price drop and everybody was having to gear up to deal with that but we knew that the people who were doing the least good job of dealing up, de gearing up to deal with that are the guys at the bottom were the farmers and we were looking at finding ways of, of helping them. That was sort of where the logic and the sensible business argument stopped. We went to talk to Fair Trade. They said, yes, we think we can make this happen. We made it happen in 2008. And since then, we've been on this incredible journey. And there's a few people in the audience who've been on it with me. There's John Arnold, who's been to Belize several times with me. We've even got um, Anup, who's the liaison officer for our latest conversion in Fiji, which we've just announced last week, um, and various other people who, um, who are, you know, have shared the pain over the years. But what has happened with fair trade for Tate and Lyle is that on one level we have been able to meet with people in the, our supply chain that we didn't have any contact with before and share some of our market insights with them. They have shared some of their issues with us and have taught us an awful lot about our own supply chain. The typical one up, one down relationship that is common in so many um, big businesses has, has been thrown out for us and we now, we're all over the place. We talk to all of our, to, to everybody in our supply chain, it's made a big difference and helped us, I think, manage the whole thing much more um, responsibly and responsively to our market as well. Um, and with a lot of help, um, the fair trade premium that's going back to the farmers is starting to make a real difference to the way they farm. One of the naive factors for our, or sort of things that we got wrong at the beginning was to assume that if we just hand these guys the money, that somehow everything would be fine. And what we found is that our cane farmers, not surprisingly, probably most of them have averaged three or four years of education. Um, they've got to the point they've got within their own organisations, not necessarily by, by, you know, being the most caring and sharing and um, community-minded. Um, it's a slightly dog-eat-dog -dog world. And these ideas that we have of environmental sustainability and the cooperative element of the fair trade um, organization and all the rest of it were pretty much lost on them. Um, we've been working with them for three years now and um, really in terms of capacity building within their, the farmers organization they're getting to the point now where they can really use that money to do some real good um, for themselves and their own communities. Now that might seem very patronising, but I think it's slightly naive. We were certainly slightly naive to imagine it was going to work any any differently. Um, and some of the great things that are happening now with, in Belize is the um, is that they're introducing environmental um, solutions to some of their pest problems. So rather than just nuking it all with chemicals, they're now putting in preventative measures that are environmentally friendly. Um, they're increasing the respect um, among their own community enormously by adhering to the fair trade standards for traceability and democracy so that, um, that their own members have got an awful lot more respect for the organisation because they know where their money's going these days. And that's a fair trade standard that our farmers, you know, still struggle and will continue to struggle to meet. It's not an easy one. Um, and the, in terms of the organisation and the actual training and capacity building of the people who, who are running the fair trade organisation in Belize, and by this I mean the farmers' organisation that they, they create and run to manage to, to, to be part of fair trade, um, you know, they're really improving the way that they work there. And 
on one level, they're doing this in order to meet fair trade standards, in order to tick that box that gets them the $60 a tonne that we pay them in order to put that logo on our pack. And on that level, it's all rather superficial. But go down a level, and these guys are really a more effective organisation that are really capable of making a difference to their communities now. They're, they were broken, and they're getting towards being fixed. And that's one of the most empowering things I think fair trade is doing. Because for whatever reason, we were talking, the, 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 the people at the bottom of the supply chain are not only disenfranchised and disempowered by the system, their own communities haven't taught them how to how to grasp opportunities and make much of those opportunities. They're small cane farmers because they don't know how to be anything else. And fair trade is starting to teach them how to be business people. And this is, what, this is the beauty of fair trade, and I, and I repeat this often. Fair trade, one of the important things in fair trade is the word trade, because it's the model that fair trade works on is a business model. It's, it reasons it doesn't do some of the things that it doesn't do is because it's not trying to. It's trying to talk about trade. It's trying to make trade work for more people. Um, and to, you know, the, the effect that it's starting to have for the farmers on the ground so that they can trade more effectively, they can be a more effective organisation, is significant. So some of the questions we were asked to look at today, should standards be easier or harder? I would say don't make them easier, but help the farmers to meet them because that's the most empowering thing. If they can start to, organize, to run their organisations effectively, then the world's their oyster. They can start to do anything effectively. They've got a cash injection through the fair trade premium, and the world's their oyster. I joke about the day that they decide to build a casino instead of farm sugarcane, and we'll deal with that problem when it happens. But in principle, should they ever get organised enough to be able to do it, they're totally empowered to do that. Um, so I, do, I say don't make the standards any easier. The other question was, should... Fair trade asks more of business. Well, one of the other important parts about fair trade is that it is an organisation that business can work with without f running for the hills. Um, we have, and I tell my colleagues in fair trade this frequently, been completely tricked into this ridiculous thing where we thought we were getting one thing and we found we've taken on something much, much bigger. But that is the strength of fair trade, that you, 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 you can buy it at whatever level that you buy it. And there's an enormous incentive within fair trade to get more and more engaged as you, as you move along with the organisation. Um, and at the moment, the flexibility that it has, the, 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 the flexibility with, with specific in, uh, businesses issues enables those companies to travel at the right speed um, and enables them to be comfortable with their relationship with the fair trade organisation. And the knowledge I have, because, because like um, Tropical Whole, Fields, Whole Foods, we also... Um, you'll also find our sugar in a Ben and Jerry's ice cream, among other industrial products, uh, in, in, among another, you know, other of the fair trade products. And um, the engagement that I have with the people who run those businesses is that they're willing to move along. They're seeing the same sort of benefits that we're seeing in their supply chains, and they're willing to move on that journey, but they have to move at their own pace. They have to keep the people in their business who aren't particularly engaged with fair trade on that journey. They have to keep the language not too scary. They have to keep the standards not too scary, and they will move along it. If you start getting too demanding too quickly, you'll frighten them off. Um, and that would be a terrible shame. I think the one thing that I would say, I'm going to stick to my 10 minutes, I'm going to be the first one to do it. Um, the one thing I would say that fair trade could do better is to do those things I've mentioned better. Um, there's a lot of other things that fair trade do that, are, to be fair, are the things that we got us into the organisation in the first place. The marketing, the trust, the awareness um, of the label and what it represents are absolutely brilliant. And we wouldn't be in this place if it wasn't for those things, because that's what's brought us in. But now that we're in, what I think they need to do 
Uh, what, what, I th what I think we need to see is, is a deeper engagement with the farmers, more focus on capacity building, more focus on drawing um, that whole, re you know, reworking that supply chain so that your farmers are not being empowered because of their relationship with trade, but they're being empowered because of their relationships with themselves and their ability to, to go out there and do what needs to be done. Fair trade is fair trade. Its strength is its compat compatibility with business. Um, it's normalising ethical trading, and that's very important, by changing consumer expectations and consumer behaviour, but also by empowering the producers to take control and to work the system themselves. And all of that within the model of trade, which is a you know, pretty ubiquitous, pretty robust model that's been around for a long time and is likely to stay around, and it seems to me to be a good one to work with. So I think there is more that fair trade can do, but um, it's, possibly, it's possibly about going deeper rather than necessarily changing the agenda. And our final speaker is Robin Murray um, of um, Twin Trading. Well, I want, to, um, I want to say three things. I want to say three things um, about fair trade from my experience. Uh, and uh, the first is uh, something that has come out of what people have said tonight, and they've, they've said it in a particular way, but it's, uh, it's absolutely on, on the metal, which is, I called it experimentation. It's, it's an experiment and always has been, right from the very start. We started in 1985 and we had a go at this and that. We started off uh, as uh, trading for various countries who'd been marginalized and kept out by the World Bank and IMF and so on, such as Nicaragua and Vietnam, many of those who just had their revolutions and who were being kept right out and, and could not. They used to come to us. I worked in the GLC, which started uh, twin trading. And they, you know, I, I had a delegation of Vietnamese suddenly come, including some kind of minister who kind of read about the GLC and said, uh, do you think we could help, uh, could, could we help them start a pineapple factory? I said, you know, we're meant to be about London. <laughs> I said, and I said, you know, we certainly, we've got an engineer here, actually, who could who could get it for you, because they never trusted anything. I said, but you've got to, you've got to pay us, you know, we, we've got to have something in exchange. So we started as barter. They, they rang up a week later and said they had some shrimps. <laughs> so I, uh, we then uh, arranged for the schools in the ILEA, whether they would like some shrimps for the school meals, etc. And so for five years, we did this kind of barter uh, to help. But and it wasn't until 1989 that we started coffee. And we didn't know anything about coffee. But then it took off. We had a great debate about whether we should go into coffee, and we didn't know anything. But it suddenly gathered momentum, and that's how Cafe Direct started. And none of us, I was an economist, I was trained at LSE, I knew nothing about branding. Never had been taught about branding, or many of the things that we talked about here. But we got into it and then experimented with different ways of doing the brand and so on. So the first point is that we're on a journey, the point that people have made. This is, if you like, a trend or whatever it is. And it's not something we ask for. 
It's a kind of sense of which is a promising direction to take and then pushing it and seeing who will come with you. It's highly practical in that sense. And that's its wonderful thing as an economist. All those of you who are economists, I, I was a you know, practicing academic economist for, what, 25, 30 years. And it was either through the state or through advice or through aid. And it is wonderful to actually be in this sphere where you can do exactly what many of us were advocating states and others should do and actually to do it and experiment and explore and create. And there are hundreds of possibilities each time. And we're at that stage now. We've gone far beyond what we ever expected. Second point I want to make is, uh, because it's now very big, I was looking actually the other day, and the world fair trade turnover in 2006 was a billion pounds. And now that's the UK alone. This is, it is extraordinary. It is far more than we could ever have possibly believed would happen. And it's like, you know, the, it's, it touches something. It's not that we have created this. It is that there are, it comes from so many, it's, there are so many different forces and interests and so on in it. It isn't a single thing. And it's what we ourselves are doing and the angle on it. Some people are very cynical. I, we have dealt with a lot of extremely cynical straight companies. But actually within all sorts of companies, such as we've just heard from Tate and Lyle, there are people who want to do things differently. Sainsbury's is now very different. Different to Tesco, I would say. I don't know if there's a Tesco person here, but that's my experience. Because there are different people, and Justin King believes it, and there are a lot of forces there. So great. They may be taken over by Qatar and so on, and then become very different. But you're always finding coalitions. So I'm going to just say what, what we have always, uh, what has driven us, and that is <coughs> a, a form of um, way of connecting, of trying to create an economy where you can directly connect uh, people in the north and the south. Uh, where uh, it's, it's based, if you like, on solidarity and a sense that we are creating, we're trying to create a different kind of economy. An economy not mediated by markets, but an economy where markets are lodged within a reciprocal, it's a form of reciprocal or mutual economy, if you like. That's why the cooperatives at the other end and the cooperatives at this end are so significant. <clears throat> and it's, that is an excel, itself an experiment and again, we never thought it would get that far. There are all sorts of experiments and bits of fair trade which haven't worked. But that one has worked. Uh, lots of failures which are as, more, as, as fascinating as the successes because you learn so much from them. And some people have said that is impossible, that you can only have the kind of neoliberal market that we've had. But what fair trade, uh, in twin trading, we now have, I think, the co-ops co who own us have 330,000 uh, 330, small farmers involved in owning their own companies here. But that I would never, I'm a dreamer, but I would never have dared to dream that we could do more than 100 or 200, and the, yet that is what has happened. And now, now the actual figures the Fair Trade Foundation has, is, it's much bigger. So... Uh, what our colleagues in Japan call people-to-people -people trade, not fair trade, but people-to-people -people trade. 
And they have done wonderful, they are a fascinating, fascinating group. I regard them as one of the leaders of fair trade, if you like, in the world. Because what they are about is those direct connections so that the small, they were actually sugar workers who were displaced by the closure of a sugar, uh, a sugar plantation. They then uh, they came and they, they found a very nice Japanese kind of theater director and he helped them. And they then started doing bananas. And they then, the, he took them to Japan where they then performed in front of all sorts of things, in factories and in their co-ops. There are 12 million people in consumer co-ops, and they made performances. They raised 60,000 pounds in two weeks, went back, got going, and then the consumers go and stay with them. And this is the thing that has really moved them. Uh, and, and there is a very, very strong solidarity there. And the consumer co-ops themselves have developed the kind of supply chains that what Adam said was so interesting about Ostrom. That is what they've done. They've developed supply chains with guaranteed, complete transparency of information, guarantee to the farmers of, and, and a continuous increase of standards, which they work on together. So that's my second point, is that what we're about is to try and experiment with different forms of economy, which those of you who've read Karl Polanyi, who was here, what, uh, 60, 70 years ago, will know that his argument is that the market tends to corrode the social institutions which, on which the market depends. And this causes repeated crises, of which we're in one at the moment. What this is about is actually using a market to try and strengthen and create different forms of social strength, and, if you like, community, internationally as well as nationally. And that is a, a, a very different kind of experiment. The third thing I want to say is that we're really, ab above all, have always been about power. It's a political economy and not just an economy. It is not just about giving an extra tuppence or whatever it is, or an extra exercise book, or that form of the old, if you like, charitable approach. It is about changing power relations. And there are three aspects I will touch on. The first is internal power relations within the countries themselves. And I, in my experience over whatever it is, 25 years, we have had very few places where there has not been severe political struggle. The very first uh, person to do coffee, Franz uh, Vanderhoff, uh, is a wonderful story of him. He was a priest in Mexico, and he kind of went for rest and recreation up into the mountains because he'd been fighting in Mexico City in a terrible situation. He then got, he said, oh, these people are so poor, we must try and get your coffee going. And of course, the oligarchs there were ruthlessly resisting, and before they got their coffee out, they'd lost 26 people uh, who had been killed by them. And the same has happened in our Brazilian nut, uh, well, it's Brazil nuts, but produced in Bolivia. And some of our colleagues have been killed in the last, in 2008, they were fired down by the oligarchs there. Uh, and the same is true in the Philippines. And in almost all cases, you are challenging this. It's the same in, it's different in Ghana and in Africa. But where you've got these, there are different power relations there, which are being challenged. 
some of these power relations are gender, and some of them are, if you like, vertical. And one of the most exciting things, in my view, about Kwapakoka, uh, which, which has been created out of the fair trade movement and has now, what, 45,000 members, 1,200 villages, each of which elect their own people. One of, they go to the AGMs, and one of them is uh, male and one female. The most exciting thing is when they are challenged by power, the, the co-op has been strong enough to resist it. So that's the internal. The, the, the international, I'll just finish with these points. The international one is, the, is an economic one, which is how you reverse power in the supply chain, which we've referred to. The first bit of it is to actually get power within the country themselves against the merchants, to develop a merchant incapacity of the primary producers. And that has been another wonderful part of the story. In Mexico, they now export themselves. Peru is the same. They're gradually gaining that expertise, which is, is an expertise, that gives them sometimes more than they get from a paying, having a higher international price. The second one is to then come to this country. And why we started the brand was because, if you like, these international terms of trade is one thing, but the real money was in the brand. That's where it was. And that's why we started to go into the brand to see whether they could control the brand and the, the, as it were, the direct connection to the consumers. And that has been, through Divine, uh, through the fantastic, Sophie Transfall is here, it's a, a fantastic story of how Divine got up and grew and the amount that they can then give back. That is linked to the ownership question. Divine has always been, right from the very beginning, has been if you like, that the farmer owned. They said, please don't take a majority because you never know quite what would happen in Ghana. So we trust you as much as this. So they had, from the beginning, I think 45%. But don't take too much. And the, the challenge there, uh, in, now that that is, and Twin is 75% owned by the farmers and Liberation Nuts is 43% owned and so on by these co-ops, international groups of co-ops as well. The challenge, I think, there um, is that the retailers are the big, that the, they take the big margins. And I think one of the, the deals, the, the, the directions, is to find the, the progressive retailers to do what Equitable do in France, which is to say, look, your margins cannot be 63%. We're currently doing rubber. And in shoes, it's 250% margin on the high street. That cannot be right, and that has to be a different deal. And the last bit of power that is important, and which I think is very important for our next direction, is the power, as it were, to disengage from the world market and to develop uh, a, sustainable, a sustainable economy which can feed themselves and they're not dependent on the export. And one of our drivers, one of the Japanese drivers, is that the use of the money coming from fair trade is to develop more self-reliant types of local economy, which are also, which will deal with climate change. So as a, a final example, our Keralese partners, who are a marvelous group of, of cashew nut farmers, are small, they're mostly under 10 acres. And what, they have, what they've said is that they will not do, and no one will be allowed to participate in this new rubber project 
unless they have a diversified, not only organic, but have a diversified production within the 10 acres so that they don't all depend on, uh, on, uh, uh, on, on exports. And so the three directions I would recommend that we, promising directions about asking and doing uh, more is one is to increase the ownership and representation not only in the companies but to extend it further in flow and I think we should start asking for it in Nestle and uh, all the others who are wanting to come in that we would like a, a share of the producers on the, uh, you know, to actually alongside the city, we want some of them to have some stake in there. So I think that's one. The second is that we must increase the direct, the direct relations between this fantastic social movement uh, here and the, the developing cooperative movement of the producers. And lastly, that we develop environment and self-reliance. And the, what you've heard tonight, what is for me is very fresh, is that actually here we have three examples of the, the key parts of this very different kind of economy, one of whom is, is an innovator who's been innovating for 20, 25 years. The second is the social movement, which is a key part of this economy. That doesn't usually come into our economics textbooks. And the third is the, the large corporation who needn't be, as Marx said, Marx said all corporations would have to behave in the same. This isn't, there is scope and leeway, and it's very interesting that companies like Tate and Lyle at the moment, and Sainsbury's at the moment, and us at the moment, are in a position to make the kind of coalition for the changes that we all want. Okay, thank you very much. We've got about 15, min 15 20 minutes for questions. Um, we have a microphone that will rove around to, um, for anyone who has a question. And I'd be grateful if you could say your name and where you're from and keep it to a question rather than delivering a lecture. Thank you. Um, okay, has anyone got a question? I'll take two, I'll take two or three at a time. The gentleman there and the, the lady there. So. Could you please give your name and um, so take two questions and I'll ask some okay. of our speakers to reply. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Alex Weir. I live normally in Zimbabwe, but I'm not a white farmer. Um, I actually, I also, I run a project called CD3WD, which I hope some of you have heard of, and also a fraud-proof voting system project as well. Um, I've got three very small comments to make on fair trading in general. Can you First, keep it to maybe a question so I can have time for others? Don't have any questions, only comments. Just one comment then, thank you, the most important one. Okay. Um, the average, uh, as far as I can see from looking at the numbers, just like minerals, the present percentage of the retail price of something which goes to the producer is about 4%. And I think both for foodstuffs and for minerals, this should be rather closer to 40%. There's no reason why not. Uh, the best example probably in the world is Bafokeng in South Africa, where they negotiated 22% royalty for the platinum, but only after taking the mining companies to court. If you compare this with Zimbabwe, the percentage royalty negotiated by the supposedly socialist Robert Mugabe 
is 2%, which is even less than the miserable 4%, which is prevalent throughout the mining industry and throughout Africa and throughout the third world. So I guess my question is, do you back me on 4 to 40? Very good. That's a great question. Thank you. And the lady over there. Thank you. Hello, uh, I'm a member of the public. I used to Can you on put the microphone on? Oh. Or speak into the microphone? Okay. I used to go on demonstrations with the trade justice movement ten years ago. And uh, it was quite a large movement which lobbied government for changing the trade rules in WTO and such like. And then I never heard of it again. Your first, the first speaker there said you support the trade justice movement. Uh, I looked it up on the internet before coming and found out it does still exist. And I had the impression that fair trade somehow replaced the idea of trade justice. And I don't know if this is because the free trade <laughs> lobby was just so strong that the trade justice lobby couldn't compete with it so the only someone called it a market based solution creating an alternative economy sounds really good but can is there still a need for that trade justice for for people to be supporting the trade justice movement um, I don't really know what's happened to it but anyway that's thank you very much yeah is, anyone is, is social justice possible without the kind of change in trade rules that the trade justice movement was campaigning for. Thank you very much. So one question is, should fair trade be asking for more? And the gentleman gave the example of, at the moment, producers only getting 4%. Should you be really campaigning for 40%? And the second question, well, what's happened to trade justice? Has fair trade or free trade pushed trade justice off the agenda? Um, yeah. Adam. Yeah. I'll, I'll take the first one. Um, I'll give a practical example. We buy organic fair trade dried mango from producers in Burkina Faso for about six euros a kilo. When that gets to the shop shelf and Newport hunters have to pick it up, the value at that the, the cost at that point is about twenty-five euros a kilo. So just try to do the sums there, right? Twenty-five. Twenty-five euros a kilo. So I think that means it's about between that twenty-two percent final RRP with our fair trade product actually goes back to the producer. So it's not the 4% that the gentleman here is quoting. Um, neither is it the 40% that you would like. Now just to run back through the supply chain, I have to admit with shame and horror that of that 25 euros shop price for the kilo, close to, well, basically 55% goes straight in the supermarket's pocket. Okay. So out of that 25 quid, what are we talking there? 13, 14, 13, 14 euros of that 25 does not leave the shop. We only get 12, 11, 12 euros a kilo. Now, the distance between 6 euros a kilo for the farmer and 12 euros a kilo we sell at, actually, that, trust me, is, is hard to achieve. We've got to move the stuff half the way around the world. We've got to store it for six to nine months in chilled conditions. We've got to pack it, put it into food grade um, 
boxes and cartons of plastic and move those around the country and get them stored in warehouses and then we've got to promote the product to get you to buy it. And so trust me, I don't drive a big fancy car. I came here by bicycle today and that's because my business doesn't make enough money for me to buy a Rolls Royce or anything stupid like that. Okay? So in that portion of the supply chain, that's the portion that's under my control, if you like, um, I feel that I do the job you would like to see done. Outside of that portion, one becomes powerless again, and there's nothing one can do about it. So you just have to work with the market as it exists. And I suppose it's a matter of trying to change <coughs> those rules that would allow the result that you want to come through. Thank you. Another trade justice. And trade, trade justice. Um, there is a huge need. Is this is this on? Yeah. Oh, there, there. Do we need that? Does that help? There is a massive need for trade justice. There is still a trade justice movement. Um, actually, in some ways, the reason why it's been slightly more silent of late is partially because it's success. It did a very good job of fighting off unfair um, global trade deals since, say, 2000, I think, and um, really saying, actually, what was on the table was not good enough and just pushed and pushed against those. Um, trade became actually politically a little bit off the agenda. It was on the European Union's agenda. So here in the UK, it wasn't as vocal in terms of where the movement was at, in terms of where we thought we needed to push the buttons. So WDM, as one of the members of the, of the trade justice movement, said, OK, we're, we've got an issue in financial markets right now. We're going to push on commodity speculation. Um, some of the other members of the movement are pushing on various other pieces of the picture, but we're quite aware of the issue of trade, and we hope, you know, I'm, I, the, the movement will be able to tap into what, you know, what's happening when, when it comes uh, higher up the agenda, which it is likely to do in the next year or two. We cannot have social justice without trade justice. Can I make a really quick point on supermarkets? Robin mentioned earlier that, you know, Sainsbury's is friendly and lovely and all loved up, and I shop at Sainsbury's. I've got one in my uh, local area. And yes, they're probably not as bad as Tesco's. But the problem is, Tesco's is the market leader. And they, Sainsbury's is not going to drag Tesco's up. Tesco's is going to drag Sainsbury's down with them. And one of the other pieces of the puzzle is fighting for supermarket justice. There, is a, there has been a campaign to get a supermarket ombudsman. We would actually want something that regulates the supermarkets a lot more than an ombudsman. But the retail power is extraordinary. And it drags us all down with it. And that's a big area of campaigning that, as you say, you don't have control over. Um, but as we work with these players like Sainsbury's who are at the friendly end of the supermarkets or the co-op, we really need to bring them into the space to understand how they can help level the playing field to make it much more fair, to be much more transparent and much more fair for producers. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Okay, so, um, gentlemen, sorry, gentlemen, Two gentlemen here, and there's a lady over there. Yeah. Can you please give your name and say where you're from? Thanks. Hello, I'm Anoop. I've come from India. I've been working for us five years as liaison officer with this fair trade movement and supporting producers in getting into fair trade and benefiting from fair trade. Now, I've seen this model of divine chocolates and twin trading, and that's really a fantastic model to follow with. My question is, why has not it scaled up? Why has it not scaled up the model? Why has 
other uh, licensees of fair trade not picked up this model of investing into the producer's development by owning a part of their company, their cooperatives, or giving them some stake in their businesses? Thank you very much. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Wolfgang Wellman from Capitaret. Uh, surely, you know, uh, one stakeholder, stakeholder to answer tonight's questions are the producers themselves. So after 20 years uh, of fair trade, um, is it enough? And uh, as you all have very good connections into the producers' networks, it would be good to give us a little bit of insight what producers would you know, answer to tonight's questions uh, in terms of is it enough for them in terms of market access, in terms of has Fantrade achieved the goals set out 20 years ago or not? Thank you. Thank you for keeping your questions short. And they Last question. My name is Chrysanthi Jodas. I'm from Social Enterprise magazine. Um, I would like to know if there is any good reason why there is not a fair trade gold standard. Not, not a fair trade? Gold standard. So why there aren't different standards of fair trade, considering that there's a huge difference between um, divine chocolate and sled Kit Kat. Okay, so we have three questions first. What, um, why doesn't fair trade scale up more and involve producers in the businesses? The second is what do producers think about whether fair trade should ask for more? And the third is should we have a gold standard? And why isn't there one now? Thank you. So, do you want to? Um, I'm not sure that I'm qualified. Okay. Talk about any of those. I think you're in a better position than I am. Yeah. Oh, all right, I'll have a go. <laughs> um, first on the gold standard. One of the things that Café Direct developed was a gold standard. And uh, my own view on the standard issue is, is the following, which is there is a, an Anglo-Saxon view of standards, which is that you have a set of standards which are heavily negotiated. This is whether fair trade or more general. And it takes years and ruthless kind of diplomacy, and you finally come down to one. Everyone's so exhausted that that's where they stand for 10 years. The Japanese approach is different, and that's the one I think we should use, which is they say, well, listen, no, it doesn't matter where we, where, where, what our standard is. Let's see where we start. Let's get that down, and let's have everyone understand what it is. And then what we're going to do is we're going to constantly increase it. And that is, the, if you like, the idea of continuous improvement. And in our uh, early discussion, that is where I think a, a number of you were, were, and certainly I was talking about it like this, that we have a, a gold standard which is, sets out our aims. But then, like the Japanese consumer co-ops, we look at this each year to see, you know, what are the problems? Why can't we get better? What are the issues? And that is the, the subject and the open discussion of how to get there. I think the Fair Trade Foundation still is, is, is possibly, and they have all these battles, but I'm glad to say the producers are right in the center there. They have all sorts of contending things. But I think that they should also adopt this principle and report back every year when they saying, we've actually managed to raise these standards. Because that leads to your point, which is, you know, don't raise them too hard because we can't meet them. But we then work with you to see how we could raise them. So I think that's the first point. The second point about scaling. Now, what I'd say about scaling is, <laughs> to tell you the truth, I am staggered uh, at how it's grown. That's, I, I have to say, it is, 
you know, it is extraordinary that it's got so, so big. So I don't think it's been bad. We are still small. I think our overall <coughs> turnover of all our companies two or three years ago was something like 70 million or something like that, which is tiny. We are tiny. And, and Adam and many of the, you know, divine is, is, is modest. But it's actually, what is interesting about this economy, it's not about, if you like, divine suddenly becoming as big as Cadbury's. It is about how an idea and an approach diffuses itself, which is why the, the whole social movement here is so significant, is that it's led to, as it were, the people within Tate and Lyle who are arguing for this, managing to win that argument in the boardroom. Just as it happened in the co-op, there are always, in all these companies, great battles about this. And so the question I think that we have to ask is how, because we're dealing with complex systems, we're not dealing with Fordist mass production systems. We're dealing with complex systems with hundreds of different bits. What we've got to do is to have a climate which allows each of them to grow. So that our Keralese farmers, who started with 2,500, are now up to 4,000. They started with cashews. They are now going into fair trade rubber and two or three other fair vanilla, I think, fair trade commodities. So if each bit of this is growing, then you're actually going to get a growth in the whole operation. Uh, what was the second point that we... The second one was, what, about, what do the producers think? What do the producers think? Well, the producers will always say, our producers, for example, will say, and this is very good, that's why it's so important that they are on the boards and they say, listen, don't, don't talk too much, we want to sell more coffee. <laughs> we want to sell more coffee. That is, they are farmers. And so they would like us to grow with more coffee. However, they'd, at the same time, they would say, but we also want X, Y, and Z. What the Keralese farmers say, which is, I think, a bit more sophisticated, uh, they all want, by the way, producer support. They all see that, this, they, that the development of their capacity is absolutely critical. And I think the more of the big companies and the small... The, the big companies have fantastic expertise, you know, which, we, which is needed. And if they can also, as it were, we set the agenda and they can help, that helps us little ones. What the Keralese farmers say, which is really interesting, is they want above all this point that was made about stability. They want to have, a, a, if you like, a supply chain, which doesn't necessarily give them suddenly huge, huge profits, because sometimes they get that through rubber. They want a stability that allows them to build what they've got in Kerala, which is to preserve a stable structure where education, health, and so on are a kind of, have actually put us to shame in some of their welfare systems, but which threatens to be corroded by, if you like, some of the neoliberal policies that are being conducted in India. So that's a more sophisticated version of. Uh, of it, if you like, the producer demand. Okay, thank you very much. I think we'll have to bring this to a close now. And um, we've had a very um, thought-provoking evening with a very um, experienced set of panel speakers sharing their ideas about inefficient markets and fair trade and what more should be done. And I'd like to thank you all very much for coming and for your um, interest and engagement and very... Um, excellent questions. And last, I'd like to thank the speakers for their 
um, fantastic presentations and the, the passion with which they're engaged um, on this issue. Thank you very much. Just say that Robin is waving something at me. Yes. It's a no, no, I, I meant to say it earlier that this, this has just come out, produced by Pluto. I don't think they've they've publicised it all that well, but it, the Fair Trade Foundation has been behind this. It's called the Fair Trade Revolution, and it's edited by uh, the man who was responsible for another battle, which was within the co-op, to make the co-op the first company to, to go 100% on chocolate. It has lots of actually very interesting things of different parts of the supply chain. I'm glad to say he's now agreed Thank to you. be chairman of Twins. So that, that's around.